Now you know, Caddy, Regina George is not your friend. Hi, my name is Jesse Ken, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great records. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records Inside the Album Podcast, where we get to go deeper on how some of Atlantic's artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the artists and the team behind them that helped craft these amazing records and get to know the little secrets that go into making an amazing album. In this episode, we're going to talk about the original cast recording for the hit Broadway play Mean Girls. In 2004, when the movie Mean Girls was released, the sentiment among a lot of people was, not another teen movie. But anyone who thought that, and gave the movie a chance, was won over when they witnessed a societal commentary that 14 years later continues to still shape the metaphors we use to talk about how the people around us behave. Writer Tina Fey of SNL and 30 Rock fame fused Rosalind Wiseman's 2002 non-fiction self-help book, Queen Bees and Wannabes, into a non-stop laugh comedy, complete with archetypes we all recognize from high school, and Amy Poehler playing possibly the cringiest mother to ever grace the screen. The film became an instant success at the box office and revived the genre from a laughing stock that annoyed the public to a film that both adults and teens love. I will admit that as someone who was in their 20s when the film came out, I have seen it more times than I am comfortable saying out loud in public. The film has stayed shockingly relevant as nearly everywhere you look on social media, its classic lines are used in memes to express the sentiments of modern life. I mean, even President Obama once turned it into a meme. While a sequel to the film was once released, it wasn't with the masterful hand of Faye at the helm, but that changed when 30 Rock wound down, and she turned to her husband, Jeff Richmond, to create a sequel, but this time, it was a musical that reimagines plot points for a new generation, all while adapting the narrative into hilarious and insightful musical numbers. In the spring of 2018, Atlantic released a cast recording of the Broadway play, and I got to sit down with a bunch of the people behind it to find out how this all happened. I'm going to let Jeff Richmond tell the story from here. You know, Tina and I had been working on Dirty Rock, you know, for years and years. And as we were kind of rounding the corner of when that was coming to its end in this last season, we realized, oh, we're going to have some time and we're at a point now where we can, like, try to step back and say, what do you really want to do? And what do you want to do for the next chunk of time? And even though there was some other television commitments coming up around the corner, what we really thought would be the most fun and challenging and rewarding was we wanted to write a musical. And so we thought, you know, we had thought about it. You know, what would be the source material? We had recently seen a Book of Mormon and it was such a hit and it was so hilarious that uh, we both, oh, well, this is awesome because you can actually get away with doing something as big and funny as Book of Mormon on Broadway. Coming from comedy backgrounds and musical theater backgrounds, we thought that this is great. This seems like a world we want to step into. So when we decided to look at musicals, one of the first places we had thought about was Mean Girls because uh, Tina had written the movie 10 years before and it's such a cultural thing. We decided to start examining that to see if that could be something that seemed like it could, uh, as they say, sing and be if it's something that we could actually get the rights for. You know, we thought we probably could get the rights, but you, you never know about those things because somebody else owns them other than you, even though Tina had written it. If I was just going to continue down that road, you know, we went through a series of things with Lauren Michaels on board, who was the original producer of the movie, and he with Brad Gray, who was running the studio at the time, decided that they uh, trusted us enough to uh, begin working on it, and so we kind of jumped in on it. It's interesting because one of the hardest things to do when writing a musical, it appears to me and to this team, and we had a great team because, you know, we had Tina, it was her first show, but she is certainly a great comic script writer, and then we had brought in a lady by the name of Nell Benjamin, who is the lyricist 
for the show, as you know, and she was great. And she had already had one big hit on Broadway with Legally Blonde, so we knew that she would come in with some knowledge. And then at some point early on in the process, we were lucky enough to bring in Casey Nicola to come in as director. When you bring the director and he kind of becomes a little bit of a head writer and a little bit of an editor and a little bit of someone that helps shape the story. So with all these brains working at it, you start to find a way to work together. You start to find out what parts of the story you want to sing and where they should sing. But trying to find out what is that song that, that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. And I find that that's an interesting part of it is that you're telling a story, but there's only room for so many songs. And so not everything that seems like it's a song is going to work as a song, you know. Jeff had mentioned the influence of Book of Mormon. I wanted to see if there was anything else that really shaped this. I think that one was really influential at the time. I mean, because it was such a big, broad hit, and it was also brought to the stage by television people and people who were comedy writers with Matt and Trey coming into the fold of that. So we were looking to them as well, like, oh, TV people can actually come in and do this kind of thing and write a musical and get it on Broadway. So that was one of the reasons there. Uh, there are tons of musicals that Tina and I both love and would look to for influences other than that. But as far as just like the impotence of going at that particular moment in time going, oh, this this feels like a big, fun thing, and we can do it. You know, another thing I was thinking about, there also are a lot of examples of television comedy writers that have found their way historically into writing Broadway shows. Because <laughs> you go back through and you realize Simon was a television writer, and he ended up writing not just a lot of plays on Broadway and not a lot of comedies, but he wrote the book Broadway shows as well, like Sweet Charity. And, of course, Mel Brooks at his start writing basically in the same building, you know, at 30 Rock, and when they were doing your short shows with Sid Caesar forever ago, these people would find their way into writing Broadway musicals. And another one's Larry Gelbart, a great comedy writer from television. So, you know, it was kind of fun thinking, oh, there's all this great history in comedy writers and people who've worked in comedy making their way into the Broadway musical format. Records rarely take more than a year to make. So I was shocked when Jeff told me how long this took to develop. Let's see, we began writing it right after 30 Rock. We had Nell come aboard. And so that was five, so almost exactly five years. That five years is very, it sounds like a long time, but when it comes to like actually writing a show from scratch and getting it out on the road and getting it written and getting it into a Broadway house, if you're lucky enough to get it in a Broadway house, it's, that's a, a very short window. Sometimes it takes much longer than that. And when Tina and I first started writing it and we heard that, oh, it takes six or seven years, we were like, we'll get this done, we'll write it this summer, and you know, six months we'll have this up and running, it'll be a thing. And we were so wrong. It's just a whole other beast that doesn't work anything like that. So all in all, it's, the process is just so, so collaborative and so interesting other than when, when you're working in other forms in television when you're working in TV you are on this different kind of schedule you know you have somebody write something one day and that night you are writing it into a piece of music or you're writing it into a script and you're recording it the next day and it's going to go on the air or be filmed you know in two days from now you know and this process is such a long ramp to get to where you're going in the end because of the nature of the beast. You know, you're going to go out of town. This thing takes a while. You're doing labs. You're writing it in front of people and you're writing it with people that it becomes such a collaborative endeavor, not like locked in an office by yourself writing something that's kind of been assigned to you, but actually, you know, in a room, writing songs and music, putting them in front of an audience, seeing how that audience responds to it, immediately going back writing a few more days or a few more weeks or whatever it takes 
until it's ready to put in front of an audience again. And then that continued process, which goes on for like years. And this is Mary Mitchell Campbell, the musical director, on how she got involved. I first got involved in the show because I was a colleague of our director, Casey Nicolau. We've done two other Broadway shows together, and Broadway shows is what I typically work on. Uh, we worked on a show called Tuck Everlasting, and then we worked on an upcoming show called The Prom, which is actually coming to Broadway this fall. But we also used to live in the same building, and we've also both done Broadway shows for a long time. So we're, we've known each other for a bit, and he invited me in to meet with the writers, Tina Jeffanel, to talk about potentially coming on board the project. And then I ended up coming on board the project. And so I first got involved by doing an early developmental lab of the show when it was being written. So being in a room with actors and trying out material and sort of deciding how to tell the story through music. (laughs) And now here's Craig Rosen to talk about how Atlantic got involved. Well, I mean, as far as the behind-the-scenes creative team in me making this record, it was an extremely collaborative process. And what was really great about it was you had these people like Jeff Richmond and Tina Fey and Nell Benjamin and, you know, everyone who had put the show together for years who came to us and sort of trusted us with their baby to direct them towards the best way to capturing the music and creating a really great cast album. And ultimately, when it came time to recording, everybody really had a say. You know, we even joked with each other as we were making making decisions that, you know, if I had the same opinion as, as Nell, then I was on Team Nell. And if I if Mary Mitchell had the same opinion as Jeff, then she was on Team Jeff. But there never seemed to be Somehow we always came to either some kind of collaborative decision or whoever felt the most passionate about their perspective kind of won the day. And I think it really contributed to really great decisions being made about how to record the album, which performances to choose, which direction to go with mixing. It was really just a really great team effort. While we're talking about how everybody got involved in the show, I'd be remiss to not include this story from Barrett Wilbur Weed about how she got involved in the show playing Janice Sarkeesian. You do this very fun thing when you're an actor, which is you talk to other actors and you hear about shows or films or television that's being made. And then you hear about roles that you think that you're right for. And then you harass your agents and your managers until you get an audition for said project. I had heard that Mean Girls was being adapted into a musical. I just kind of sometimes every once in a while you get a little light bulb that goes off in your head and you're just kind of like that role is mine. Like other people can have other things, but that one is mine. And I know I can make that special and turn it on its ear and do something different with it than what other people would do with it. Basically, I just harassed my reps until I got an audition for the show. And then I auditioned, I think, four different times in a row. Gray Henson, who plays Damien and I, we've known each other for a few years. We, prior to this job and like prior to becoming friends in this extremely intimate way that we are now we just had a a lot of friends in common and had hung out a lot and always really enjoyed each other's company but I immediately thought of him for this part and he immediately thought of me and so we kind of like put our heads together and just decided that we were gonna 
package ourselves as a package deal. <laughs> so yeah, so we auditioned three or four times separately and then we had an audition together and he had found out <laughs> he's a, a huge like diehard Tina Fey fan in the writing sense. Obviously she is a genius writer. I am more of a diehard Tina Fey personal fan, like from her book and every interview she's ever given. I just think she's the best. But he found out he was like, Tina really likes to cast people who are more or less the characters. So we're going to walk into the room and we're going to hold hands and we're going to tell them that we're friends. I was like, okay. And he was like, just trust me. And I was like, all right. And so he just kind of grabbed my hand and walked into the room and he just started laughing hysterically at a joke that I had not made, which made me laugh. And then I just kind of like went around and around and Casey had already worked with Gray and he was like, do you guys know each other? And he's like, oh yeah, we've been friends for years. The rest is kind of history. But also it wasn't exactly a lie because I have felt very, very close to Gray since the day I met him in passing and since, you know, the day we started hanging out by ourselves. Um, that's just kind of, sometimes you have that kind of click with people who you're dating or people who you wind up married to. And sometimes it's a a friend version of that. And I feel that with him very strongly. <laughs> I then turned to Jeff and asked him what were the thoughts that helped shape the show? You know, I think the thing that we found important with it, that we really wanted to do well with it was take care of the, of the heart of the actual story of Mean Girls. Cause so many people cared about it and said it was a very important film to a lot of people growing up and they'd see themselves in the movie and they would look towards the movie and see themselves in and of that way. It became very important to a lot of people. So we knew there was a lot of people who had a lot of feelings about it and it was important. So we wanted to take care of it in that regard. We wanted to be sure that as the movie does, we were taking care of like the heart and messaging of the film in and of itself and that we weren't just doing a piece of camp. Because when you start to think about the title and the show and what it could be and the way that many things on Broadway, you know, like sometimes, not many things, but very often people will take you know, a subject matter and it'll turn into a piece of camp, you know, and something that doesn't feel true or sincere. And we wanted to be sure that we weren't going down that road at all. And that the laughs that we were going to generate out of the show were going to be from an honest place and that the music was going to come from an honest place as well. I then asked him to elaborate on the musical thoughts and how it would shape this cast recording. Yeah, you know, we approached writing this, as I was saying earlier, we wanted to really feel like everything was coming from an honest place. And that was also important to us in the styles of music that we chose for each character to sing from. Like, we came in knowing that I didn't want to write a show where the whole score was like pop music just because the show was populated with girls in high school who would be listening to pop music of the day for a couple of reasons. It didn't, it didn't feel very honest, and it also feels like, well, that's something that could be dated rather quickly, and we were looking for something that felt like it could play in many levels and many age groups. So you know, the, what we decided to do was look at a high school and realizing that it's a show about cliques and groups and that each clique and within each group, they would sound a little bit different from each other. And that was the most honest way for people to sing. So for example, when we got to Damien, who was this flamboyantly gay, kind of frumpy high school kid, very enjoyable, we knew that his background, his voice would sound at its most honest when he was singing like actual old-fashioned Broadway show tunes. So all his stuff like, where do you belong, it sounds like a flashy 1950s Broadway number. And then also when he comes in the second act, he sings a song called Stop. You know, it's very much like an old Rodgers and Hart or Gershwin tap number. We felt like they were the right way to hear from him. And then with Janice, who's kind of the 
anarchist of the show and kind of the, the voice of tomorrow and the voice of warning and don't do this, she felt like she would be absolutely singing from a place of rock and roll. She was an anarchist. She's some kind of alternative rock, something with a darker edge. We went down that path with her. I think most of her songs, like Apex Predator, have a real, like, four-in-the-floor kind of a real rock groove. My orchestrator, John Clancy, when we were first conceptualizing what the orchestra was going to sound like, you know, there are certain rules about how many players there are for each theater based on how theater size, and we wanted to push for 14 players. Pretty big for a pit orchestra, but one of the things that we both pushed for was we wanted two guitars. Most pits don't have two guitars, even if they have one, but we wanted two guitars so we could really distinguish and really color that the rock and roll stuff when we were leaning into that kind of a palette and double percussion and three keyboards the other thing we knew that for these other songs that were like broadway stuff we wanted to be able to have them sound pretty authentic so we wanted to be sure that we were covered in in woodwinds and brass and strings so we pushed to be sure to have at least two brass players and two woodwind players doubling on a bunch of different horns and two string players i just kind of lined the whole bit, bunch of stuff together there in far as palette of the show <laughs> but that's what we were going for so that that's why we wanted to have the authenticity of what would sound like your typical pit orchestra in Broadway, which you might hear from any of these older shows. You still have enough tools in that pit to sound like you were really able to pull off some really good, gritty rock and roll. You just heard Jeff talk about John Clancy, who's the orchestrator of the show, who also came from Tuck Everlasting. I wanted to ask him what is an orchestrator, since I had never even heard of that position before. It varies a little bit on each show because composers are all different, but Generally, you know, composers write on piano or guitar. They also, they write vocals, you know, vocal melodies and stuff. Sometimes they do their own vocal arranging. Sometimes someone else does the vocal arranging in terms of harmonies and backup vocals. And then the orchestrator takes that sketch of the piano or guitar, and I have to write everybody's part. I have to envision the sound of the show, you know, per song, per show, whatever. And I have to, you know, write everybody's part. And that is a mixture of using what's as much as I can of what the composer provides me with and then composing you know my own counter melodies and you know anything I need to do to make the songs work to lift the song up so sometimes you get a very detailed piano part from a composer and sometimes you just get chord symbols you know what I mean so it depends that's why I say it varies it depends on the composer and then you know you have meetings with the composer to talk about sound palette and instrumentation and everything but it sort of really doesn't unfold until i actually start putting notes on the page and then the whole thing unfolds and you're like well this went a whole place i didn't even know it was going to go like you can't really predict where they're going to go mean girls was tricky because it's a comedy there is no sound world for the whole show it can be anything you want it to be at any time well so we i try to pick instrumentation that is extremely diverse i mean malleable so that let's say like I have two reed players, they each play like four or five instruments. So now I can cover like classical stuff. I can cover any kind of big band music or R&B, rock and roll, horn section stuff because I have them switching off between saxophone, flute, clarinet, English horn, oboe, bass clarinet, barry saxophone. I'll have all those instruments with two guys, you know? And the same thing, I use trumpet, flugelhorn. It's one guy and then I had a trombone player and those instruments, they can be classical, they can be rock, they can be jazz, they can be a lot of things. So I try to, you know, choose my instruments well because I know what's in front of me is at least going to be different. You know, every song's going to be its own world. You know, that's sort of like how we started. And the same thing with the percussion palette. We also use electronics and I did some programming, drum programming, synth programming like stuff. 
before I even started because I knew some of the songs that really needed to sound modern were going to have to be supplemented with some tracks. You know what I'm saying? I then asked him if he could expand upon the musical direction notes he got from the team. I just think that what we're going for is that at any moment when Jeff wrote a tune, we just decided we wanted to go 100% in the direction of the tune. He wrote a song that's like a big James Bond Adele rock symphony ballad, you know? And so we went full on with that sound for that one song, you know? And then he also wrote like old-timey musical theater, big band stuff and Dixieland stuff. And we went 100% in that direction, you know? We didn't want it to any of it to sound like quasi, you know what I mean? I mean, that's always what I'm after, man. That's the hardest thing in musicals is so much of it can sound quasi especially rock music you can tell when it's like theater version of rock music or when it's really rock music you know what i mean and he was like totally let's go there so the rock music in the show is the real shit you know the moments that are big band we went i mean i'm just influenced by you know sinatra glenn miller ellington count basie i mean all kinds of stuff that's where i come from but not that there's anything wrong with musical theater stuff that does that but i just know the other stuff more and so that's where i came from with those songs you know you know, I grew up on rock music, so that's sort of the easy part for me when there's rock music. <laughs> I went to school for classical music, so and it's all in there in Mean Girls. That's what's, what's difficult is the uh, most of the underscore is orchestral and classical in its background. Even though it's a big pop commercial show, it's really all over the place musically. So I then had Mary Mitchell Campbell elaborate a little bit on the musical direction and how they shape the sound for each character. Well, I think, you know, so Jeff is an amazing composer, and he, he definitely thinks from a very directorial and an actor-based, drama-based um, perspective. So a lot of what we were doing was doing themes that attach to each character. So we have sort of a James Bondy type theme that attaches to Regina George that we kind of kept alive through the show. There were a few other things like that, styles of music that we wanted to sort of keep attached to different characters. And then looking at, you know, obviously flow of the entire show, how things go together as far as like how they line up. Cause a lot of times things will work really well if you keep them on their own, but they won't work so well with what comes before or after it. So you have to keep adjusting to make sure that, that there's enough of a energy shift throughout the entire show that you're taking people on a ride that goes along in correlation with the story you're telling. It's a relatively involved process and it's a lot of trial and error that you kind of almost can't tell until you get it on people in a room and can see watch it unfold. I mean, I think we knew we wanted to keep this as relevant to today as we possibly could. I think that was a big goal for everyone on the team. And I think just the understanding of how how everything has stayed the same in many ways as far as like high school social structures are concerned, how there's always cliques, there's always groups that you belong to that you don't belong to, that you wanted to belong to. But the ways that now social media plays into all of that, which has actually advanced quite a bit since the movie happened, and finding ways to make this feel relevant to people that are going through high school right now as well as those of us that went through high school quite a bit ago, <laughs> you know, keeping it relevant to all of us so that it's, so that it's a universal story around trying to fit in and trying to find your place in that social system has been, I think, a high priority for all of us, which has been really fun to do. And Tina really went out of her way to talk to young people and even have some young people come sort of give feedback to her about sort of what felt real to them or what felt not as real to them. So I think we've, we've done a pretty decent job of staying true to that. 
So we talked a lot about the ideas that shaped the Broadway musical compared to the movie, but what's also interesting is the characters changed a lot. Here's Ashley Park, who plays Gretchen Wiener, talking about how her character changed. For example, one of the lines in the movie, when she snaps, she has her breakdown, is about Brutus is just as great as Caesar, why don't we just stab Caesar? And I think this Gretchen is not about revenge or about being just as good as. She's very, very okay with being beta and never being the alpha. Like she, And I think that the core of this character is that she just wants to be a good friend. Whatever that means. She wants to be the best friend that there could be. And that is what gets her into trouble. Because there are some people that it will never be reciprocated. And the saddest thing for me, and I think that comes through in the lyrics, especially with the reprise. It's so funny because Gretchen, in her anxiety and in her neurotic nature, she has moments of clarity that often come through the songs and the lyrics in the song. But then immediately she snaps back into her same patterns. And I kind of love, there isn't the nice happy bow at the end. Like, oh, Gretchen gets a guy or Gretchen becomes a leader or anything like that. It's like, really, we see the every woman. That's what makes her so relatable, I think. I've had people of truly every single age, every single color, every single sex come up and say, wow, I really, really connected with that song. I think that is like, that's what we want in musicals. You know, we want something that makes people who relate to characters that they wouldn't necessarily think that they would relate to. There's been one line that has stayed the same throughout every iteration that I've been a part of in terms of our out of town and everything. And it's the line right before the song that says, you know, sometimes I feel like an iPhone without a case. I know I'm worth a lot and I have a lot of good functions, but at any time I could just shatter. And it leads right into the song. And just that, as soon as I read that line, and then as soon as I heard the song and the lyrics from the song, I knew exactly right away who Gretchen was. And I really connected with her on a very, very deep level. And I think that she, she was much, she was maybe more manipulative in the earlier iterations. But as I got to know her and as I got to know, um, put myself in her position with her struggles with girls and the relationships and the friendships, she developed from this insecure girl who just wanted attention, who was just very surface level insecure. And the creative team and the writers like really collaborated with me in making her a very like honest character and her flaws and her insecurities and just wanting to fit in. And that the spine of that came from the song, What's Wrong With Me? And they even, you know, like now there's a reprise of it in Act 2 that is really brings parts of the show around in full circle. And the character now dances a lot too, which is always fun. <laughs> and here's Barrett to talk about how Janice evolved. Right off the bat from when we started working on the show, it's definitely been different from the movie in many respects, but also, you know, the same vibe, the same story, but it's, it's different. It's updated for this generation of kids, which is actually, you know, same generation as me, just the younger half. But one of the things that, that I noticed right off the bat when I got the script was that Janice did not end up with Kevin G the way that she does in the movie. And that was in there from the beginning. And so I just kind of decided on my own, well, then why don't we let Janice not be straight? (laughs) And why don't we, you know, let all of this bullying about her sexuality come from a real place? Because that makes it all the more important. You know, it's hard enough to be ostracized as a kid for a made-up rumor about something that you're not. But it's harder still to be ostracized as a kid for something that you are or something that you might be or something that you're not really sure of or ready to label yourself as. You know, that's that's much harder. And so I kind of pushed really, really, really hard for that. And I think I got my way as much as I was ever going to, because as progressive as Broadway is, I think they are not, you know, mainstream Broadway shows are not 
quite ready to have a teenage lesbian and a teenage gay guy as their two narrators for a story. But that's, I think, Janice, the way that I have designed her and played her. She's she's not straight. And I think that's the, the label that we're giving her because she, you know, when someone tries to label you in an aggressive, traumatic way, the natural reaction, especially when you're young and you want to push back is to just decide not to label yourself at all, no matter how uncomfortable that makes other people. And I think that's what Janice has decided to do in this version. So it's, it's funny when you're talking, when I'm talking about it in interviews, cause they're like, well, is she gay? Is she straight? Is she bi? And it's like, well, that's the thing. She doesn't want to fit into someone else's idea of what her sexuality is to make people comfortable. And I think that's been really funny to watch that make people in this industry very uncomfortable. You know, we're, we're very comfortable with this kind of like loud, ostentatious version of gay men in theater, but we don't really know what to do with ourselves when we encounter like a, a young woman who is a little more sexually ambiguous. That makes people very uncomfortable. I didn't grow up in an environment where that would make someone uncomfortable. So it's been, it's been really interesting to watch people try to process that. And of course, the younger fans of the show have absolutely zero problem processing that. And the, our older audience members and our older members of this community have a very difficult time dealing with that. And now I'd like to pause this program and tell you for a minute about what you can expect with the rest of this season of Inside the Album. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new. I like old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richman and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm more like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. But first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No. And Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. When doing these interviews, I started to realize it wasn't just the initial ideas that really shaped the show. You know, musicals are so much different than other art forms. When a movie comes out, you don't get to re-edit it again. Unless you're Kanye, you don't make a new version of your album and keep putting it up on streaming services. But you'll hear here that musicals often go through a little bit of a development period where they talk to the audience and really hone it in. Here's Jeff to talk a little bit about those changes. When we were doing our show out of town in Washington, D.C. in the fall, we learned a lot of things. We learned that we needed to be more in Katie's head. We kind of needed to know why she was doing what she was doing in order for us to be satisfied with the way the story was laying out. So we, were, we felt like we were missing a few things in that 
in that regard. The other thing we've, that the audience told us that they really wanted is they wanted more Damien. They really wanted Damien to have a number the second act didn't have. So we decided when we came back to New York and we were sitting down and doing our fixes and our rewrites, we wanted to give Damien a number. What we decided we wanted to give sure that he had another big splashy number. So that was like important to me and, you know, and the choreographer and Tina and Nell as well. But the other thing that Tina wanted to be sure that she got in was she wanted to get more points of view about women and the youth not being able to say no to things, that everything has an immediate response because that's the way we deal with things now. We see something in our phones and we immediately respond to it. It immediately goes out into the world. There's this thing now where people don't know how to stop. They don't know how to regulate that. They don't know how to not tweet. They don't know how to Instagram every moment of their life. So we thought this was a good way to give a splashy number in the second act and still get that kind of point of view in, which Tina that was important. So there's this number called stop and the word stop works at a couple of levels because it's like stop, don't do this, think before you do this. But it also works in this level of stop, stop time of a tap number. So it all kind of came together to be this really fun, big, fat production number in the second act uh, that kind of took this very new 2018 message, but wrapped it in a very old-fashioned uh, musical style. And it's very successful. People, you know, people love it. It's a big, splashy number. But a much newer message. So there's that. Another one would be, well, all right, so I'll go into, uh, in, into Katie. We had an opening number in Washington, D.C., and it was a song called Wildlife, and it was supposed to, like, show us Katie Heron in Africa. You know, familiar with Mean Girls, you know, she, she homeschooled in Africa, and then she gets lost and she gets thrown into the suburb of Chicago because of her parents aren't going to be working in in Africa anymore. What we were realizing is that we needed a song to help us really understand where she was coming from and to get in her head. And so we wrote, rewrote the opening number that became more a number about knowing why she's in the savannah and Africa, but she still is yearning to do something more. And it's just I'm still yearning to get to a place where she can have friends who have less than four legs, you know, like uh, just human friends. And she's at a point in her teenage development where she would like to, you know, talk to a boy, but there's no boys there. So we wrote this song called It Roars that would function as an opening number to let us in on Katie's actual feelings and desires, getting her from Africa and into the high school and wanting to fit in, but also giving us this big symbolic thing about it roars, which works on the African level, works on the animal analogies that come in later into the in, in the show, or she can look around and see, oh, these students are just behaving the same way as, as animals do in the jungle. That way I can know how to you know, find my way through this world. Roars is also the kind of the feeling you have when you're a teenager, girl or boy, and you cannot restrain these primal feelings in you anymore and you just want to scream or you just want to yell or you just want to kick down a wall. It, it's always coming from a place of it roars inside you. You try to sit it, you're trying to kind of contain it, but you just can't. That's what we thought would help us. And it did. I, immediately you felt for Katie right in the beginning of the show. And here's Mary Mitchell Campbell talking about these changes as well. One thing that I think is interesting is that we went through, we rewrote a lot of material between Washington, D.C. when we did the show there and when we brought the show to Broadway. And one of the big things that we rewrote was the opening number, both how we started the show and the song that started the show, which is called Mean and sung by Janet and Damien, is new for New York. And also the song that we lead into called It Roars, where we sort of meet Katie in Africa and then watch her make the decision for her to come to America. That that whole situation, you know, everything about that is very different than what we did 
in D.C. And it's interesting because a lot of what we did in New York was based on what we learned in D.C., which was that, you know, we needed Katie to be more active in her decisions. We needed a clearer understanding of, of why she wanted to move to Chicago and go to a real high school and have friends, sort of what her desires were so we could better understand the whole story. So that was a pretty major shift that happened that was <laughs> exciting and a bit terrifying to, to do such a major change for the top of the show because it just starts your whole show so differently. And then similarly, we did a very different opening to Act 2, mostly, again, from things we've learned in D.C., which is why it's so useful to take a show out of town and, and put it in front of an audience for several weeks. We realized how much everyone was responding to the character of Damien, and we came up with this really great opening of Act 2 called Stop, which is which was a big tap number. <laughs> and no one knew that we were going to do a big tap number. And none of the cast knew that we were going to do a big tap number. So that was all very interesting to sort of be in rehearsal and go, hey, we're going to do a big tap number. And some people were like, yay. And some people were like, oh, God. <laughs> and, you know, those that were like, I don't really tap as well as I think I probably need to. were like, okay, I'm going to catch up really quickly. <laughs> that got very interesting, but really fun. And it became a really huge, fun number for the opening of Act 2. So we changed the opening of Act 1, the opening of Act 2, and we changed the end of the show relatively extensively with a big number called I See Stars, which is one of my favorite songs on the album, actually. That was something we didn't come up with that song until we were out of the rehearsal room and in tech. So pretty late in the game, we introduced that song to the cast and introduced it to the show. So, you know, it's a whole process. Everyone has to stay very, very, very flexible <laughs> during the making of a musical because everything keeps changing every hour. So we would print music out and we would, instead of just dating it by date, we would usually have to timestamp it because it would depend on if we released it at on a specific day, if we released it at 11 a.m. or if we released it at 3 p.m. because it would be like a different version. It really does change quite extensively throughout, you know, every few hours. <laughs> it's changing a lot. The only other thing is we really... um struggled with trying to get Regina's big number. That was a number that was, we had the Bond theme going on, but we, we have this song that she sings where she told Katie that she'll go talk to Aaron on her behalf because Katie has a crush on him. And then ultimately she steals him back. And the song in which she does that is called Someone Gets Hurt. And we just, and that was a very tricky one to solve. And we had a really hard time. We did so many versions of it in DC and Never really felt like we ever totally nailed it until we went back and rewrote it over the break between D.C. and New York. It's a completely different song, but it has the same title, <laughs> which I think is very interesting. And the same sort of idea. It's a different song. We sort of leaned more into into her Bond theme, which I think is really fun. In any musical, I would say there's always many, many moments like that. We had like a really fun, crazy number that had to do with the talent show scene towards the end of Act One. And it was really developed and really fun. And we had like a lot of things going on with it. Once we saw it in the scope of the entire show, it just felt like Act One was too long. <laughs> and it felt like we got to that point and we, it was really entertaining, but it wasn't necessary. And so we sort of ended up having to like cut those things back. So there's a lot of things like that because you're looking at the piece as a whole and, and what the audience is going to be going through as a first time experience. And here's Ashley Park talking about how her character evolved. Yeah, I think a big point of 
a revision that we did a lot of was um, in Revenge Party for my character, especially, which is when she kind of has the breakdown and reveals the secrets that Regina has. And we did so many iterations of that. Like when I first came into it, I think that I was the one to reveal a secret to a different character and I stayed on the stage throughout it. There's one where I literally just kept on spilling secrets like I like word vomit. At first, Gretchen was really about word vomit and that she couldn't control what she was saying. That started to feel a little bit caricature It's so funny because high schoolers are not dumb. They're either hyper aware or not aware at all. And that is the truth that we found with that. And so with Revenge Party, I realized a big part of my creative process in this show, especially with Gretchen, and every character is so important, very specific slice of the pie. You know, so there are times in the process where I was like, you know what, I think that we should cut Gretchen's trustful. I don't think I need to be in this scene. I should say less here. And especially with someone like Tina writing, she is such an economy of language. It, you know, she can say so much volumes about a character in just one line. And I just thought that we didn't need to hit the nail over the head so much with Gretchen. And so, like, that was a big part of it was, like, not being selfish and uh, a hog in terms of, oh, I need to be in this, I need to say this, I need to be, I need to have the most lines or anything like that, but was really being, like, what is the most important parts of her? How are we going to create a through line with her? It's tricky when you have an iconic movie like this. For example, one of the most iconic lines of the movie is, you can't sit with us. And people are just waiting for that. And it's funny in a show like this, because you get kind of Rocky Horror Picture Syndrome, where people know that things are coming or they're waiting for it and they start cheering. But sometimes, like, a cheer after that doesn't really progress the storyline. Then we, we played with, what if she doesn't say you can't sit with us? And then that didn't work. I said it, and then now there's a version of it where she kind of backs off of saying it. And she gets really scared, which is very true to the character that we've created. Our Gretchen is a lot more, she acts like she truly doubles as a bird when they turn into animals. And so, like, I really based a lot of the character off of, like, how a bird would act and how flitty and how just, like, living in the air of it all. Just, like, thinking like an animal really kind of helps. I look perfect Ice queen, that's what you see That's what they all So we've talked a lot about this musical itself and how it came to be, but what about when you actually have to make a cast recording? Here's Craig Rosen to talk about how Atlantic sees making cast recordings. I mean, at Atlantic, we hadn't done a cast album in over 10 years before we did the Hamilton cast album. When we did that one, it brought up some unique challenges. First of all, there were 46 songs, uh, but also there was this desire to not make the record the way cast albums are normally made, which usually you're essentially recording live in the studio, everyone in the same room at the same time. You do a couple of takes, you find the best performance. It's all done very fast because you can't actually start recording the cast album until it premieres on Broadway, until it opens on Broadway. But then once it's open on Broadway, you want the record to come out really fast. It's set up so that you end up having to make these records in a very sped up, rushed way. And what we tried to create was a way to sort of split the difference between how cast albums were traditionally made and how real pop or rock records are made where different elements are recorded and then layered on top of each other. So traditionally, if you're making a cast album, the whole orchestra and the entire ensemble are in the studio recording the whole song from beginning to end. 
in a pop and rock recording environment, you're recording the rhythm tracks, you're doing guitar overdubs, you're recording the background vocals, you're recording the lead vocals, you're recording the lead vocals over and over again to capture the best performance of every line of the song. We sort of developed this in-between process where rather than recording everyone at the same time, we recorded just the core band, and then we recorded just the ensemble vocals, and then we recorded just the lead vocals, and then we would overdub sort of key elements of the instrumentation that maybe needed particular attention. It gave us the ability to capture the best performances and also have a little bit more isolation to be able to piece all of the best performances together in mixing. And Mary Mitchell Campbell will explain how she saw this on her end. I mean, from a recording standpoint, there's like a, a level of, you know what's going to happen. You know what you've planned out. I think when you're doing a musical version of a recording, you're trying to capture all of the things orally that you, that you see visually, which is a bit tricky to do because obviously you don't have the added bonus of seeing what's happening, but you want to make sure that it's conveyed vocally, that everybody understands the sort of dramatic arc to the songs because they're written in that way. So it's not just about vocal production, it's also about storytelling, which is harder to capture without any other advantages except for what you're listening to. <laughs> so that's a slightly different approach. I mean, first of all, I have to say, I've done a lot of cast albums, and this is the first time I've ever gotten to work with Atlantic, and it's been an amazing experience because they really know what they're doing, and they know what they want, and they're very clear about it. And it's a slightly different way of recording than a lot of albums get done because a lot of cast albums get done with everybody in the same room and, and very, very quickly. For example, you would bring everybody in the same room and you would have one, basically one big day and you'd run through everything two or three times and you hope you get it right. And then you move on. And I feel like Atlantic, the way that they structured this was slightly different. We actually got more time to we get to work with just the band first and lay down the tracks of just the band and really focus on making sure we were really happy with the way the grooves were working and that it was translating and that the cuts we had picked worked well and the transitions worked well. Cause you do make a couple of different concessions as far as like, there's a couple things where like, there's one thing in stupid with love is a, is a track on the album where we started a whole step lower than we do in the show because we weren't doing the visual thing that, that we do in the show. So it didn't make sense for us to repeat the same material musically in the same key, <laughs> even though it's fine in the show, it doesn't make sense on an album. So we like changed it, which just meant that we wanted to make sure that that worked. Plus the musicians were playing something that they don't normally play. So there were a couple of places like that, that occurred that we wanted to, to that we got the opportunity to really like play with and explore and make sure we were happy with before we had to really commit to it because we had a little more time. Not, you never have a lot of time. <laughs> You never have enough time, but you always have, like, this was definitely a situation where we got a little more time than I would say we normally get. And it was very beneficial for us as far as the band was concerned. They all got to feel like they really had enough opportunities to walk into each other, to really hear, to play with each other. And then we put vocals on top of it. There are some songs in the show where you can't do that. We all had to be in the same room at the same time because there's too much following of the actors to be able to know how to, I couldn't possibly guess their timing well enough 
to put it on an album. So we would we did a couple of things with them in the room. So we did one big session where it was the orchestra and some singers, and then most of the sessions were orchestra only or singers only. And now Jeff Richmond's going to talk about the differences in instrumentation on the cast recording. We were very lucky, you know, we had our full players. You know, I think there's some edits here and there of maybe we didn't include all the dance music. There's a lot, quite a bit of dance in the show, and it's hard to pull off all the dance music on an album just because of time restraints, you know, in 75 minutes when you're getting down to CD size and all of that kind of stuff. So there are some edits here and there, but in general, the songs exist how they do in the show. The same instrumentation all around, the same vocal palette, everything is there. The one instrument we did want to get in the pit and we couldn't get in the pit because of pit size and because of like financial uh, reasons is we wanted the French horn player because French horn covered it's such an interesting instrument because it can cover such a wide range of sounds and palettes and tones you know it's so great when it can blend in with brass players it's so great when the single French horn player can color the woodwinds in a certain way and strings and it's also such a great heroic powerful dark sound when it just solos and can kind of blare into whatever you're doing it's just a great so for the orchestra we did the recording we wrote a french horn part which we had in the band of the pit that you hear occasionally on the album you won't hear it in the pit when you come to the show but it's covered in other ways there was another another sound that's in the show that I really like the color of it. The Regina character, we decided that she was such an interesting, powerful character and presence in the show, and that she was also represented what was supposed to be the evil side of things, but she was also supposed to be the human side we would see her in the show. But we decided to voice a lot of her stuff that it sounded like a Bond theme song, like everything she sings from has this kind of this symphonic, big John Barry, you know, cinematographic film score sound, but also coupled you know, with these rocky guitars underneath it, which we felt like, well, this sounds like Regina. And that was a question that we did have. We also had the question of answering the question, when would Regina sing first? That was like a big thing. And we found this way for her to sing you know, we finally found this thing where she sings, where she just sings about herself, but she almost sings it as a whisper. And then you could feel every time we were doing it early on that it made people sit on the edge of their seat in a way that you would not imagine. Like the, when she comes out and she just sings this singing stage whisper, it makes everybody listen as close as they can to her. And you realize, oh, that was such a great move to show how much power she had. Is that such a status move? of somebody to be to speak as quiet as they can so you have to hear them and this is ashley park talking about both the stress and the thrill of the cast recording it's as intimidating as it is liberating there is no wrong way to do it there's nothing to compare it to when you do an original cast recording this is the first time most of the world is going to hear these songs and they have nothing else to compare to but in that way it's intimidating because you're like oh my gosh like this is the recording that people will listen to and they'll make choices based off of this, even if it's not imitating and even if they're doing their own thing. This is the first time people will hear these songs. It's just, it's really, really cool. I mean, the cast recording is truly one of the coolest parts of an original Broadway musical process. You know, I, I mean, I, I make a joke where like, until we are on that cast recording, I'm like, oh my God, they could fire me at any point. Like, am I fired yet? Am I fired yet? Am I fired? I was raised in Michigan. And I didn't see a Broadway show until the summer before my senior year of high school. For me, cast recordings were my access to Broadway. It's so fascinating because, like, I remember, like, my, one of my favorite soundtracks was, like, Wicked. I remember hearing dialogue and being able to envision the scene. And so, especially in, in this musical, and my character especially, we actually used a lot of 
the dialogue in the, you know, we give some of the story within our cast recording. She was like very intimidating to do, you know, because you really want to, you have to set up the story in a way with your voice and you don't have the luxury of the set and the costumes and the rest of the story and the rest of the characters. So that's always like super fun though, because my songs are the ballads in the show. I was one of the few numbers that got to record with the band live because we weren't doing it to a click track because a lot of the other, any, any other songs in time, because it's such a dance heavy show too. We, the conductors use a click track, but with my song, it's, it's really cool that we've developed this breath because what's wrong with me is especially deceptively difficult. To, it's a, because it's an easy melody to listen to, but the rhythm, Jeff has like opposing rhythms in it, which is once it's in your body, it's, you can't forget it. It was cool. We don't get to see the band and sing with them as we watch their strings and their horns playing. So that's like the coolest part of doing a cast recording is when you can, you kind of have access to that. You get to see it in a way that you never get to with like headphones on where you can hear every flute and every oboe, you know? This is my third cast recording, but the other two I've done have been revivals of musicals, which is a whole different thing. So like this had a whole new, even though, you know, it wasn't my first cast album, it had a whole new exciting feel to it. And here Barrett talks about her least favorite part of making these recordings. Yes, I really don't like when we have to take out uh, expletives in albums. I really don't like that. And we had to do that a little bit on this album, which I get, you know, if you want to put it on Radio Disney or something like that and and have it be accessible to even younger fans, like, of course, then, you know, we got to, if you're dealing with eight-year-olds listening to this album, then you have to take out the word asshole, but... uh, I think replacing uh, the lyric, uh, every asshole has opinions, but it doesn't make them true with everybody has opinions, but it doesn't make them true. It's like, well, that's not really the same thing, is it? (laughs) And they didn't really tell me about it. They were just like, we're just going to do this for this one edit, just for the really young kids. And then it wound up on the album. And I was like, oh, boy. But as far as like vocally and stuff, you know, my my voice, I have a gigantic voice and it it is a voice that has been trained and designed to fill up huge rooms so obviously when you're recording an album you gotta gotta use your like your inside voice a little (laughs) but that's the only thing that really changed but we had a really good time recording this I mean I think it's it's really nice to put something on a record that you know so well I think that's that's really rare and definitely I think it's rare for Atlantic and uh, you know as they're they're kind of venturing into doing cast recordings now which is incredible because Atlantic Records reach is so huge um you know something that would take like a another type of artist maybe might take days to record one song it takes us you know like two or three passes because we already know it so well, which allows for a lot of fun to be had <laughs> in the recording studio. And I think we had uh, we had cameras in there filming us while we were recording. And initially that's really weird. And then as the days progress, you just kind of forget that that's what they're there to do. You forget that they're there to, to watch what you're doing. So you just do what you would normally be doing. And this is a very, a very, very close knit, very silly cast. And we, we tend to find, especially our adorable ensemble members, we tend to find any excuse to joke around or make a joke out of something or laugh directly in each other's faces. (laughs) And I think that was especially true when we were recording this album. (laughs) So now we've talked about the recording, 
but it still has to get mixed. So I turned to Craig to talk about that part of it, because this mix sounds so much more exciting than most Broadway records. Part of the mixing process is you've recorded all of these performances, and now in the mixing process, it's a combination of finding and choosing the best performances of every element of every song, and then there's the direction of what the mixes should sound like. We worked very hard on kind of piecing together the best of the performances and then gave our mixer, Neil Avron, really clear direction that this was supposed to sound like a pop record and not necessarily like a Broadway performance. So that was, that was how we approached mixing in general. And we tended to get really, really in the details. So every song, the first mix would come back and we would have maybe dozens of very specific comments. The trombone in this part has to be louder. The vocals here have to be lower. The strings in this four-second part should be slightly warmer. Really specific mix comments. Then we got to the song I See Stars. I remember when we were recording the song, I turned to Clancy, who is the orchestrator and and one of the co-producers on the album, and said, when we mix this song, it is going to sound amazing. We got the first mix back, and this is, this is the finale of the show, and it came back, and the first mix sounded like the finale of a Broadway show. Rather than send it to everyone and get everyone's specific comments, I said, you know what? I don't want anyone to even listen to this mix. This isn't the right direction. And spoke to Neil and said, Listen, up until now, we've been really specific, and, and maybe we should have given you clearer direction on how to mix this particular song. This song is Coldplay, U2, epic rock anthem, big production mix. Think of it that way. Don't think of it as a Broadway finale. And he said, okay, got it went and did a new mix, it came back, and when I heard it for the first time, I literally cried. And then we sent it to everyone for their comments, and Clancy wrote back and said, oh my God, I literally just cried. Out of all of the songs, after, after we got that mix back, we ended up making one comment and then just left it exactly the way it was. We had a listening event the night before the album came out where the whole cast came to Atlantic and we all listened to the record together. And I was talking to Clancy again about that song. He said, you know, the reason that I got so emotional about it was because when we were working on this song, this is what I always imagined it would sound like. And when I heard that mix, it was the first time that I actually heard it the way I heard it in my imagination. To me, that's the greatest compliment of what working on a cast album like this should be, that they spend all of this time working on trying to create what the show is going to look like and sound like and how audiences are going to respond to it. But the cast album is something else. It's a time capsule of these songs. And to be able to really make it 
make it sound like a record and to make it into a record that people want to listen to independently over and over again for the experience of the recorded songs. For someone to say, this is what I always imagined the song should sound like is just it's just the greatest endorsement that we actually figured out how to do it the right way. And here's John Clancy to give a few thoughts on the mix. I will tell you this. I have done a bunch of shows now, and I'm fortunate that pretty much all the shows I've written orchestrations for have been recorded. That being said, I've never been happy in my life with a record because generally the aesthetic of music theater is vocals loud, music somewhere off in Cuba somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like I grew up with real records. I like to me like Pink Floyd The Wall is the greatest sounding record. I, I don't listen to cast albums. I can't understand how anyone can listen to them. I didn't know what to expect from the Mean Girls record, but I didn't necessarily think I would love it by any stretch. Also, I had not done a record with Atlantic because they hadn't done that many cast records. So, man, the first mix came back. It was I'd Rather Be Me, and I shed a tear in my studio because I couldn't believe how great it sounded. And I called them up immediately, and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> the dude who mixed it, Neil Avron, is super badass. And I can't say enough about that guy. And then, you know, he took all my notes because I sent him millions of little notes about, oh, there's bass clarinet in this part and there's cello because of the stuff that's hard to dig out. And he didn't know the music. He, you know, he just got thrown the mix. He, he didn't know the score like I did. And man, he followed all the notes and he, he really was interested in making all of the little tiny insides of it shine. And man, I cannot say enough about doing the record with that company and having that mixer. I really can't. I love the whole thing. <laughs> so that's my favorite thing about this whole thing. I just ex never expect it to be anything. And I think it sounds amazing, you know? <laughs> so... Now that we've talked so much about what makes this musical so special, I thought what Barrett said here really would be a nice way to close it out since she talks about what made this collaboration so great. We've all been working together for a long time now. I mean, uh, even the people, because we did a developmental process a little over a year ago. And then we went to, we took the show to DC in the fall. And so we had a little bit of cast changeover then because a couple of people opted out of uh, continuing with the project. Even just from DC until now, it's just insane, like how much time we've all spent together. It's nuts to hear, like, I feel like that's reflected in the album as well, where you can feel like what a cohesive unit it is and you can feel how as the people who wrote the show got to know us better they started rewriting things and kind of tailoring stuff to the people involved and that's I think that's why I love theater and theater music so much is because it's like such an intensely collaborative art form you can't do it alone you need literally like hundreds of people to help you do whatever aspect of performing you're, you're trying to do it's not possible to light yourself it's not possible to really direct yourself even if you are self-directing you have to have somebody watching and you you know you can write music for yourself it's you still need people to test drive it like even when Manuel was writing Hamilton and they were doing their developmental workshops he had to have another person step in and do his 
Hamilton track so that he could watch it and edit after the fact. That's why it just creates, you know, for better or for worse, it creates a really intense community in whatever show you're doing. And sometimes that's the reason that shows don't do very well is because people aren't communicating and they aren't talking to each other and they aren't willing to to let go of something that isn't working or they aren't willing to try something new. And I think that's been the opposite of what's true for this show is like everybody is very, very willing to let the best idea in the room win. And I think that is very much uh, attributed to Tina because that's the tone that she sets. Like she's the most successful person in the room. (laughs) So it's, it's uh, other than Lauren, but you know, Lauren is, Lauren is more of our like spectral benefactor. Like he like floats in and out of the theater and in and out of rehearsal rooms, like a friendly little ghost. You know, Tina is the one who's there every day. And if the most successful person in the room is, you know, deferring to an ensemble member or deferring to a non-celebrity principal cast member to get an idea for a scene or to get an idea for a song or a musical shift, then you just kind of naturally are fostering in a very, very creative, collaborative environment. And I think that's why the show has superseded community expectations for it. I think a lot of people came in expecting to see kind of like a theme park version of a favorite movie. And it's it's so much more than that. And we owe that completely to Tina. Like she may not have written or thought of every single thing, but she allowed the best idea to constantly win and that's a big deal (laughs) cheap fake easy to break that's how i used to be here take it now i'm awake i'll tell you what i see plastic don't shine glitter don't shine rhinestones don't shine the way you do you are so Thanks so much for listening. To find more of our podcasts, head to AtlanticPodcast.com. The Mean Girls original cast recording is now available on CD and streaming everywhere. 